It's about the tools we use. It's about the stories we tell. It's about how we change. It's evolution, baby. All right, and we are back for another episode of Do the Evolution. And our first episode of 2021, I'm once again joined by Michael Porcelli, and we're going to dive in to an incredibly broad, incredibly important, and incredibly complex topic that is at the forefront of so much discourse this week, Michael and I um, have been noticing. And right now it's about the second week of January in early 2021, and we're about, I don't know, maybe a week and a half after... Donald Trump was banned from Twitter, and then Mm -hmm. subsequently a a, a number of major media online platforms. And I think maybe within a day or two of that, the other big thing I think that initiated this conversation was Parler, the kind of Twitter rival for free speech, which Mm -hmm. Uh, has been around for a couple of years now, two years now, I think, was basically completely deplatformed from the internet. A number of its service providers pulled out at different areas of the stack, as they say, which we may talk about later. But this has brought up an incredibly heated and, like we said, complex discussion about free speech. And specifically, we're going to talk about, we're going to start with talking about this idea of, you know, so Twitter banned Donald Trump for life. Like he's he's done. The 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 famous Twitter account that launched it all, so to speak, is gone. And does that violate free speech? Right? This is one of the questions we're seeing right now. And what makes it so interesting is we're seeing a lot of the traditional left versus right, I think dialogue a little bit kind of haywire in terms of who's speaking from which perspective that you might assume, which has been interesting. And, you know, when we think of free speech in general, you know, here in the US, at least, we're focused on the First Amendment, right? And uh, this constitutional right, which specifically doesn't necessarily apply to what to happen to Twitter, because Twitter is a private corporation with their own terms of service. So technically, what they've done, even though some people may be arguing otherwise, at least as the Constitution stands right now, does not violate free speech. But what we're going to kind of talk about today is, well, yeah, on that one specific technicality in the Constitution, that's true. But overall, you know, at a deeper moral and ethical perspective, is that true? And we've got... One of the reasons I love talking to, about Michael is Big Net. We, we talk about a lot of different things that, that he and I have covered on this show in terms of interpersonal and communication and dialogue, personal and developmental in terms of how humans grow, how cultures grow, how technology grows. And this issue is one that kind of touches everything that I think we've ever discussed to some extent. Libertarianism, the market, like it. It's all coming together in this moment on this thing 
that our society is having to navigate. So with that kind of container, you know, one thing Michael and I were just talking about before this is we're going to do our best to kind of just speak to everything that's out there, own our own biases when we can, and just try to add stuff to the conversation that maybe we're not seeing elsewhere. Because this is where I think some of Michael and I's um, experiences in the growth world and, and just some slightly different orientation to some of this stuff comes useful. And so yeah. what, you know, I'm just going to start with uh, my question is, what did you think when you heard Donald Trump was banned from Twitter? Well, you know, in the context, and we you did leave out one specific thing we'd be remiss to not say was a bunch of rioters broke into the United States Capitol building on January 6th. Yes. And, you know, Donald Trump had said earlier when the weeks or in the month prior, something like, come on January 6th, it will be wild, right? So in the context of that moment, and even in the moment that we're still in, because, you know, we haven't actually had the inauguration of Joe Biden and hopefully now that we've said the specific time, place, details, we can leave it behind and go to more broad thing. But in the moment that I heard of the Twitter ban, I was relieved and glad. And I had this other kind of internal voice. It wasn't the majority at the time, dominant voice in my mind. It was sort of like, hmm, this is signaling a huge shift in power in, in a historical sort of scope that could be problematic and definitely is going to irritate a bunch of free speech advocates. But in the moment I was kind of like, I even still think we might be in the middle of an active insurrection. It's hard to say. And I kind of believe he's the primary instigator sort of fanning the flames of it. You know, he has some plausible deniability, but it's pretty flimsy if you really look at it, in my opinion. And we can talk a little bit about that and kind of the role of indirect speech and incitement and stuff like that. But given the circumstance that I was like, wow, I could see this escalating far worse than what we saw in the Capitol riots. You know, we could see, you know, we, we know there's, you know, massive stockpiles of guns that <laughs> U.S. citizens have. And there's, you know, I think my guesstimate is those are more predominant in the you know trump trump land trump supporter world than in the non-trump supporting world and you know you could say the turnout on january 6th was merely at the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we didn't see although i don't know it's hard to know that yeah this idea that he could use the twitter platform to further incitement or encouragement or this kind of elliptical way of indirect speech that he uses to kind of get more of it to happen, I think was a very real risk at the time that the ban happened. Now, making it a lifetime ban, like right in that instance, I thought was, that definitely was sending a different signal to me than simply, hey, let's just ban him until the, you know, the new administration is inaugurated yeah. and so forth. So I, I still feel a little uncomfortable that it was a lifetime ban. And it, it, it progressed, you know, that's one thing. It, it was definitely an interesting, right? It was 12 hours 
Mm-hmm. And then I think it was until inauguration. And then suddenly it was just, no, you're done. That's it. You're gone. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the, the, the forever piece I do think is probably pretty complex. And at the same time, it felt like it really, my experience, at least in my nervous system, and certainly I'm going to project my nervous system onto other people's just from where I was standing was like, okay, the temperature, we just like knocked off four degrees of heat from something that was kind of really was ratcheting up. And so I was, you know, in favor of it in that moment. Not so much because it's specifically, you know, I read the tweets that they ended up kind of banning him for, but it, it was more the culture and energy he had been consistently projecting, particularly since the election last November of a type of speech that was destabilizing. You know, there's some great mm-hmm. threads going around online versus like small lies versus big lies. And big lies are the types of lies that actually uh, are aimed at the fabric of like shared reality and, and start to, to can really kind of cause some harm in that sense. And that was a sustained thing, right? The election was stolen for us. I remember I, he sent out that video the day of the riot, right? Where he's like standing there in front of the White House. He's like, hey, violence needs to stop. And the election was stolen and I love you. And I was like, whoa, there's like, it's it's like this immediate, like go home, but y'all are still in the right spot energetically, right? Like was just, just this total, like, I couldn't believe, I actually couldn't believe it. When I saw it, I was like, that's just shocking in terms of giving airspace to that worldview still and not necessarily saying, I want you to not do that. And so then things have kind of just cascaded from there. You know, I actually think, I don't actually think it was Twitter that went first, right? I believe it was Facebook that first kind of pulled the plug on him for at least two weeks or then a lifetime ban. And then Twitter kind of caught up, which is interesting because Twitter has, you know, been his main platform in a lot, a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yep. So let's, let's start to kind of branch into a more general area. And I think we're going to touch on things like potentially like legal things like section 230 of the communications decency act from 1996 or the first amendment or other things like that. But also uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about kind of the moral and ethical kind of grounds of that and hopefully add some things here that we're not hearing out there. And you know, I, I want to keep it sort of one level removed from the current events and more kind of in the abstract principle domain to help people think real clearly. And the reason why is because, well, first of all, it's hard to think clearly about this when emotions are aroused. And a lot of the discourse that I've been listening to out there on podcasts and news is pretty inflammatory one way or the other, right? Like, oh my gosh, this is the end of free speech and you know, this is Orwellian this or the other people who are sort of like, you know, this is exactly why, you know, we need to kind of limit, in, you know, the ability to incite you know, mobs and things like that. And this is exactly the the moment when we should curtail like freedom of speech or reach or whatever. And I'm like, yep. But it really is not that easy. You know, it's not it's not it's not that simple. Let, let's do something maybe a little bit that we haven't heard that much of, which is to talk about this type of speech, first of all. Like, 
you brought up kind of Trump's response and this this kind of indirect speech. I mean, it's it's actually a linguistic thing. It's very simple. Like, you know, if I said, uh, if, it would be great if you passed the salt, right? I haven't said pass the salt, right? Like, and it's sort of like you added all these extra words in there, but why? Like, why do people communicate in this indirect way? And like, this is actually, you know, it's everywhere from just politeness. We see it in kind of politeness, but all the way up to kind of like, indirect offers for bribes or like uh cloaked sexual come-ons or veiled threats like racketeering right like you know that's a nice story you have there It'd be a shame if something happened to it i didn't say anything i didn't say to do or not do anything right like yeah totally right? like we are know this from like gangster movies right that they talk this way and you kind of get the message you know what i mean without and you kind of had this plausible deniability or you go to the cop and say like, Hey, would it be okay if we handled this right here? You know, it's like, well, I didn't bribe him yet. Right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> like, so, so this indirect speech allows for, you, you might say a kind of ambiguous area between cooperation and conflict to kind of emerge, which is actually, you might say generally very functional in human communication. However, because it's this way, it gets exploited especially by abusers. And, you know, we think if I think of like dangerous cult leaders or dictators, they kind of get this. And even in the personal growth industry that you and I are very familiar with, if you go into like sales and influence, people talk about, you know, neuro-linguistic programming and hypnotic language patterns and ways of talking that kind of like, you know, sort of like the movie Inception, you incept the idea and the person thinks it's their idea, but you kind of, crafted a, a construct or a narrative with like a maybe you put an embedded command in there and they think oh this is my idea and then they do it and it's like and if you were to try to critique the discourse like how did that person get that idea well you can't exactly point to where the influencer said do this or don't do that like it actually sort of you know in hypnotic language talk about bypassing the critical faculty like if i don't tell you think this or do this you don't have the response to me like I'm trying to tell you what to do or what to think. Totally. So then if you don't think that I'm trying to tell you what to do or what to think, then I actually start just listening and accepting what you're saying, right? But when I start listening, accepting what you're saying in this indirect language construct, then I start thinking, oh yeah, I think that too. That's my, it's my idea, right? Like it's a trippy thing that can be totally exploited by bad actors, basically. And we see that all the time in the, in the seduction world and in the cult world and all kinds of things like that. A hundred, hundred percent. And this is where it's interesting, <laughs> you know, so, certainly something I've been tracking in the last years for the various ways and documentaries and things I've worked on in the spiritual world is, you know, seeing cult and cult leaders and the powers and who's susceptible to that. And, you know, there's, there's, there's so many layers to this in terms of, you know, if, if we're in a traumatized state or we're in some kind of fight or flight, a lot of times we're attracted to strong leaders or messages or groups who can give us an orientation to the world that helps us know our place in it and feel a little safe, you know, right? Which I think is something... Uh, while I disagree with a lot, you know, at one kind of very broad level, I can get a sense of, you know, I've been pretty lucky in terms of being in the types of work we're talking about. Of, I feel fairly oriented in the world, 
even if I'm uncomfortable with what's going on, I can kind of have a perspective on why it's maybe happening and what's going on. But I can imagine if you didn't, like what a crazy ass time we're living in. I mean, we're almost what, 14 months into a pandemic or, or so since it like hit China. And it's been an intense year that in a lot of ways, I think laid laid the groundwork for this kind of eruption that we've been experiencing now of all these systems no longer necessarily complex enough to kind of work in the ways they've been working. And that's, you know, one thing I've just been thinking about in this conversation is particularly around this speech is like, this is something we have to sort out as a species and navigate like step-by-step right now, because there's no, there's no clear path to victory. And right. It involves, go ahead, go ahead. the technology piece, you know, the governmental piece, and a lot of psychology, like you were just talking about, that I I, mm-hmm. I think hasn't necessarily been part of the mainstream discourse in terms of you know what's going on inside people that might attract them to certain types of speech or might attract them, like we talked about last year, to some of the conspiracy theories that tend to take super complex things and make clear villains. And bad guys and good guys, right? Which is a little bit easier to deal with, you know, to some extent. Of I know, <laughs> I know in my own ways, I'm always choosing good guys and bad guys, right? Like, and I, I try to keep it in the gray, so to speak, but it's very easy to fall into that. Oh, well, I'm right, they're wrong. My people are good, their people are wrong. But that speech, yep. it's, it's seductive. And it's, you know, the only way I could really kind of put it, like you said, is, it's it's slippery, right? Because it's like it's yes. it's not like a fine line. It's more like this kind of amorphous edge. So you can't. It's hard to regulate speech like that, right? Or say when it's gone right. over the line. Oh. And you know, not not to keep bringing it back to him, but one of the, I think part of this conversation, and you know, Trump was good in that. Is he's also really good at setting the frame, right? Subtly setting the frames Uh of conversation without then having to paint in the details, right? So it's like he kind of sets a container or sets a frame. And that's, that is one of his geniuses, you know, his, his, his genius, I think is seeing the way, I don't think I've seen another politician that could keep up with him in, in that regard, in terms of always being one to set the frame first, set the frame first, set the frame first, which is kind of, to some extent, the rules then of the dialogue are dictated by that. So, you know, in some of his speeches, he's been, you know, like we said, I saw him keeping that frame intact, right? Like in that, in that White House video I talked about mm-hmm. the day of the insurrection, there was a frame that was still kept intact, even though he was able to, you know, immediately quell the fire, he didn't quell the frame. That's right. He didn't yeah, make he didn't totally. make anybody wrong. Totally. Right. He didn't make anybody wrong. Yeah. Right. So I mean and he didn't he didn't concede the election or say that, you know, Joe Biden won in a fair and free election. So this this thing you're talking about, frame control, that's another thing that we, you know, we we know having studied NLP or hypnotic language, this is this is a huge thing to be able to set the frame or control the terms of the discourse 
cult the programming expert named Steve Hassan wrote a book called The Cult of Trump in 2019, where he talks about Trump's kind of similarities to cult leaders, you know, that do this kind of thing that kind of like put people in a certain mindset and they think that they're this is their just their thoughts, but it's really the cult leaders telling you what to think. And, you know, this plausible deniability thing and, you know, conspiracy, I think is a just to give a historical example, like to bring in the 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 big bad of all time is Hitler, right? Like even today, Holocaust denial people will say, well, you can't find any place that's actually recorded where Hitler said to kill all the Jews or to gas all the Jews or whatever. And, you know, some people say, well, that's, you know, that's proof that it didn't happen, <laughs> which I think is a weird way to argue. Like, but, the, but if you want to, you know, accept that it happened, which is the historical consensus, it's like, oh, well, this is a particular way of communicating that kind of sets up a certain frame and sort of allows a whole bunch of, you know, a whole bunch of Nazis to try a whole bunch of different things. What do we, you want to surround them up and put them in this neighborhood? Okay, we'll do that. Or you want us to like put them in these camps where we have them work? Okay, we'll do that. Like, and it's like some of what he's saying is direct. So maybe it's in private conversation and not on record, so to speak. But the maintenance of a kind of plausible deniability in these kinds of things you know, even if I am saying, you know, it's a nice story you got there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. Like th that cloak, that linguistic cloak is just common through all kind of abusers, cult leaders, sociopaths, dictators, these kinds of things. And if you're going to start going out of your way to be like, let's just parse word by word what you know, Trump did or didn't say and say, like, see, he didn't literally say that you're kind of like you have to kind of turn a blind eye to the fact that, like, we, you know, it's very common that we don't literally say things like and you do it, too. And I do it, too. And we all do it. And it's it can be exploited. And we can point to plenty of examples of where that's exploited, which sort of leads us to like this boundary of the free speech principle. Right. Like. So set aside, Twitter is not the United States government. They can ban somebody without violating the First Amendment. That's fine. But are they, you know, there's there's this idea of like, well, there should be limits to speech, right? Like somewhere, right? And let's even take a pause on that idea and simply say, like, if we said there's just absolute freedom of speech all the time everywhere, even people who are free speech absolutists sort of know, I'm a free speech absolutist. You know, I've, I've toyed with that identity before. I want to just say right up front, I'm very much into like, let's maximize the speech for many reasons. We can get into that too. But I also re realize like there's limits to that. And some of the limits are, does it cause harm, right? Like some of this, yeah. you know, does it cause harm? And does, you know, does commercial speech override, you know, harm speech? If two, if two different kinds of speech are coming into conflict, right? There's actually all kinds of legal precedent where one would take precedent over the other one if they were to ever kind of come into conflict with each other. But, you know, the bottom line is like harm creating speech, you know, is real. And, you know, we know Trump does it. Uh, and not just in this case, you know, you could, uh, I, I went and listened to a podcast. It was Quillette did a, did a thing, an interview with a woman named Sherry Jacobus, who was a, an operative for the Republican party and uh, basically talks about how essentially Trump canceled her through his tweets, right? Like he basically cyber bullied her into oblivion. Like, so there's just no one anywhere ever, 
even people who would privately tell her, yeah, we totally get it. We would love if we could hire you, but we just can't, right? Because Trump has canceled you on the tweets, right? Like, so that's that's like, that has real world harm consequences to somebody in their ability to even earn doing the thing that is their profession, even with the party that they want to be a part of, that they support in principle. Like, that's pretty dramatic uh, example, but like, this is, this is, this is right at the moment where we kind of go like, all right, what kind of harm or to what degree of harm do we essentially use to invoke like this idea that like we're going to curtail speech because harm is being caused. This is, this is a moment or a, a time and place where speech should be or could be curtailed in, in some way. Yeah. And I think part of what we're having to, right. One, one of the things I've been interested in and thinking about a lot this week that I feel like dovetails off that is right. There's no, I don't know if there's a way to only protect good speech, right? So speech right. that's positive in the discourse or positive in human culture, right? So there's, there's this thing I think we have to acknowledge that the, the sticky line of like, yes, I believe in encrypted communication that not even the FBI or government should have a backdoor in, right? I like the idea of that. And right. wow, in doing that, I have to acknowledge I'm helping to enable and create a space and a mechanism to connect and possibly contribute to the worst aspects of what humans are capable of. Just very simply, just right. Like in terms of sex trafficking, child pornography, those types of things in, in protecting all speech, to some extent, I'm saying uh, I'm acknowledging I'm going to have to protect some of that. And man, is that a sticky sticky, sticky, uh, complex thing that I'm like, I feel like that is going to be one of the great challenges and crises, uh, moving forward of how do we do that? And, you know, as someone who tracks technology and all this stuff, you know, there's the great savior and excitement around decentralization and what happens when no one owns all the content. And it's like, well, that stuff's going to keep happening when no one owns the content. Right. And there's just no putting the lid back on mm -hmm. some of that content when it gets out there. And just what does that mean? <laughs> what do we do with that? Right. So does that mean we just truly want yeah. unlimited, unregulated everything? Because that's part of what comes with it. Right. And there's some real harms in that and some real harms in just creating an energy and, you know, a, a, a culture and. <sighs> Yeah, I just, I feel totally intensity gets complicated even thinking fast. about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if I love bringing in the online and the difference, you know, because these principles, you know, the I, the concept of freedom of speech or freedom of expression, you can find it all the way back, the Greeks and the Romans, you know, at least in the Western kind of tradition. And I imagine it's in other traditions as well that I'm not aware of at this moment. But it's not like, it's not even like John Stuart Mill, who kind of was one of the most impassioned and clear thinking advocates of it in the early modern period, right? Like, you know, his writings predate the Constitution and the First Amendment. So it has a, an illustrious sort of tradition. And we can talk about, uh, you know, for, for Mill, it was about the seeking of truth, right? If you're allowed to consider 
alternative ideas that will actually support you in your truth seeking. And you can talk about, you know, reasons why it's a prerequisite for a democratic society, right? If the state can control what people can say, then people can't critique the state or the risk is that they might not be able to critique the state. And then it sort of, sort of invalidates the discourse, you know, that leads to the democratic rules. Like if you, if the, if the, if the, whatever you want to call it, the, the context in which we're, we're speaking and talking and considering ideas and alternatives and discussing and proposing and voting and all these things, if it's, if it's already just controlled, then you get a thing that's sort of like a, you know, a, a fake version. This is kind of almost like that kind of idea of like a banana republic or sort of like, well, you know, under this dictatorship, they have elections, right? But the dictator just keeps getting reelected because nobody else is actually running because, you know, they'll get killed, right? <laughs> or the alternatives are, you know, flimsy alternatives, you know, the, these kinds of things. So it does seem like protecting it you know, is, is, is required, uh, ahead of time. And, you know, you brought the, you brought the privacy thing in, and and this is, this is, I think another thing that's being lost in the, in the conversation, but let's, you know, if I were to, if if there was no internet, right. I would just sort of assume in the privacy of my own home, you know, in my abode, I can say what I want, however I want to say it and more or less enjoy something like the freedom to say what I want and the privacy of what I'm saying, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's not recording devices and, you know, there's just you and I'm here, you know, and we're in the, we're in the back room too. and those places still exist, right? Go into the back room and relinquish your cell phone and sit in the, you know, sit in the yeah. room with just these two or three people and talk, right? It's like, that's a cool thing, right? And, it, and it's kind of like, oh, it's like, there's like a nice overlap of freedom and privacy together in that sense. And, you know, I can sort of, you start expanding this domain outwards and, and like, uh, you know, eventually you get to the internet where we have the ability to kind of like say stuff. And it's like, we're saying it where my body is in the privacy of my own home. Like I'm sitting here holding my cell phone, but I'm typing in a thing which has the potential to reach that hundreds or thousands of people. You know, people are like social media influencers operating right out of their freaking bedroom. Right. It's like, so I'm not, it, that's not exactly the same as me talking to a person in the privacy of my own home, but there's like this kind of confusion of like, well, do I, do I get to have the, the, you know, the level of privacy that I want or control over what I want if, if I have this kind of ability to broadcast it? And a lot of people don't sort of think about it in these principled terms, but there's a way that, that privacy and freedom of expression start to pull apart a little bit. Like if I, you know, I want to be an influencer. I want people to listen to what I'm saying. Cool. Well, guess what? You then in a way your expressions are no longer totally under your control, right? They're out there, right? Like, and you can be recorded or, you know, screen grabbed or, or, or whatever. Like you don't have the kind of privacy that you thought that you had. So these, these principles come into conflict eventually, especially in the internet age where anyone can just broadcast everywhere. Instantaneously. Instantaneously. Uh, Yeah. In in many ways without any kind of filter or editor, right? That's I think part of what we're um, negotiating of should that be a layer 
on top of speech? Has it always been a layer on top of speech? And, you know, I, there's one thing I just want to name in, in this discussion that I think plays out in a lot of arenas of the world, so to speak, in development of just kind of the exponential change between organic and what's possible and technological and you mean organic like meat faith like yeah like right so freedom of speech i can go into the town square and i can scream and my speech can literally only go so far and hit so many people there's like a natural kind of uh, limit filter or limit limit is the word yes exactly and that with technology in the digital age you know, and this is where we see a lot of things we're having to figure out as human beings. And, you know, these ideas of supernormal stimuli, things we've talked about before of these capacities that conflict with like organic nature, right? We're not used to mm-hmm. as a people being able to sit down and eat unlimited sugar, right? It wasn't really part of the human experience. There was always an end to that. And part of, I think, what we're seeing in this digital transition is things that might make sense in the organic world, as I'd call it, in meat space. I think there's just a different equation we're having to realize in in the digital arena, in the amplification arena, right? Of this is, you know, one of the topics that has been really, uh, in an exciting way, I think, uh, coming to the surface in the conversations, uh, which is you know, the difference between freedom of speech and freedom of reach, this this thing that um, right. the Center for Humane Technology and some other people ha- have really kind of been hammering home. And I think this will kind of dovetail into part of what we're going to talk about with just how much information <laughs> there is to deal with in the, in the world right now. And that's just the idea that, you know, something I've noticed and is it brings up a charge in me is, right, like, I've been hitting the drumbeat of like, hey, we had this thing called RSS like years ago that was awesome and it was kind of decentralized and it allowed you to get direct access to people without filter. And then the social networks sprang up. And so the, the, the bargain I think a lot of people made with social networks, including, and I would argue, some of the very same people who are now screaming about the power of Twitter and Facebook and these media companies is instant reach. So used to be you Mm -hmm. wanted to reach a wide audience, you were going to have to climb the ladder of friction. I mean, whether or not it's true and, you know, there's, there's people that had privilege and all that and get into these things, different conversation, but something like getting to be published in the New York times, it took some friction to get there right? Took some friction to get there, to have access to that kind of audience. That kind of went away in the social media uh, uh, sphere where these algorithms, because suddenly there's so much information, it's too much information for one human mind to keep up with or process. And when there's too much information, I just check out, right? So what do they find? Okay, we're going to introduce the newsfeed. We're going to start calculating what stuff is the most interesting to keep you engaged. And then once they have that power, part of the power is if I'm a content creator, I can go on and maybe it's the second blog 
or podcast I've ever created. And for whatever reason, it trips the algorithm. And suddenly I've hit 400,000 people in 24 hours. And right. We see this Going like, viral. content goes viral. Yep. And so they're actually using the technology of that company and its algorithm to artificially increase their reach versus let's say the old school way. And I, you know, I'm a romantic in this, so I get it's not necessarily true, but the, the like, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write once a freaking week, like clockwork, putting out my best thoughts and ideas. And I'm going to build up a devoted audience over time who through actually engaging with my ideas, you know, I grow into something. And this freedom of reach thing, I think is where a, a, a lot of people kind of confuse like, well, everybody should be able to say what they want, but should everybody be able to say what they want and then have it instantaneously transmitted through the power of an algorithm and an attention economy to a bunch of people Inst overnight? Like it's, it's almost like a superpower that computers were kind of doing without foresight that brings in so much complexity of, okay, well, would I be okay with as much as I disliked it, you know? Uh, Donald Trump standing on a street corner screaming, uh, uh, doing, hey, do this, do this, do this, sure. versus <laughs> the, the instant reach, right? Uh, the accelerated yeah. amount of people that get pulled in. And so that's this, I think, dialogue we're having now of, well, does anyone have a right to digitally amplified and accelerated reach? which can now be done without any kind of friction or editor or gatekeeping or um, discernment around truthiness, as uh, Colbert would put it, you know, because sure. that word is obviously sure. complex. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's kind of becoming obvious that, no, I, you know, this is where my elitist comes out in that I don't think everyone should have access to the most powerful attention algorithms in the world. I think they can say whatever they want in their bedroom and have those discussions. But when that discussion is suddenly launched in front of, you know, a million people like, Ooh, that's, it's just a different calculus to me. It's, it's a totally um, different, different thing. You know, this is going to be a weird, <laughs> maybe triggering thing for some people, but it's like, imagine, you know, we're still in the pandemic and it's like, okay, you don't want to wear a mask, right? Maybe you're a person that doesn't want to wear a mask and, and you sneeze. Anyone in your immediate vicinity can be exposed to that sneeze. What if there was some freakish technology, though, that you sneezed and those droplets went to a million people instantaneously? It becomes a <laughs> different type of harm, right? Like a different calculus, I actually think. Then I might actually be like, no, you need to fucking wear that, man. That's not a personal choice anymore. Um, and anyway, it's kind of a weird thing to think about, but I feel like that's part of what's happening with freedom of reach. Yeah, yeah. And that's where the conversation around it sort of evolves from something more sort of like the harm principle or the offense principle. I mean, it is a little bit of an extension of the harm principle, but like in a kind of a more like public health sense, right? The fact that it's just being yes. amplified so far. And they talked a little bit about that uh, on the lawfare podcast they had a really good episode where they were talking about these different ways of conceptualizing the reach of speech and the regime on kind of like the filtering basically and what the rationale is and so like there's now kind of like some talk about public health being actually a good rationale or a potentially 
plausible rationale in some cases to to filter for the sake of harm reduction filter speech not germs right like mind germs you might say but you brought in i I love that you brought in on several occasions when you talked about the meat space and organic and then this kind of analogy to the virus uh i think there is a little bit i want to hit a touch point here on just the embodied nature of you know just nature you know we are we're, we're we evolved in a certain evolutionary niche. You know, if you buy into the theory of evolution, which I do, and like we don't just experience the raw data of just physical reality directly. We don't. Like this is something philosophers have talked about a lot. You know, Kant talked about the phenomenon versus the noumenon. Like, how do you know the color blue that I'm looking at is the same as the color blue that you're looking at? You can't really know. Like these kinds of, you know, interesting philosophical speculations. But that when you kind of comes down to it, it's like. You know, you can go to any high school science textbook. Like, this this is the bandwidth of visible light. It's just this little tiny, but here's the whole electro, electromagnetic spectrum. Cool. Guess what? We're not perceiving radio waves and we're not perceiving infrared, but maybe there are some animals that do perceive some of these things that we don't. So that is a filter, right? That's a filter. That's an involuntary filter. It's a filter that's just embedded and embodied in what it means to be a human sound we can hear from this frequency to that frequency but above it we can't dog whistles right dogs can hear it we can't hear them right like and you know certain other sounds we can't really hear but maybe other animals can so this idea that somehow in order to even just exist in a as a as an organism we are filtering the raw data of reality uh into the 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 bandwidth or the niche that makes sense for us to survive and thrive within that is something we we don't have any choice over we just arrive you know as human homo sapiens born into these bodies with and i'm not saying i'm not trying to make a a moral justification for any particular kind of filtering in terms of online space but like you said you know, this idea of the hypernormal stimuli, like really fatty sweet foods were just super duper rare. So we have a fat tooth and a sweet tooth in an evolutionary context where they're rare, but then we've created a giant agricultural society around us where that shit is just available at such scale that it actually, if, if we just follow the impulse when it strikes us or keep following it once it's available, like a, like a big dessert or something like a cheesecake, right? Like, okay. Right. Like, that's actually counterproductive to to your body. And like, are we in a place where by an analog, there's some massive quantity of of stimuli? Like, let's just talk about speech just to begin with, right? Like totally. humans, ancient humans, prehistorical humans, for as far as we know, you know, 200,000 years or so, even longer, we're talking. We have sort of synthetic sort of archaeological record evidence to believe at least that they were talking, right? Like this is kind of built in, right? We don't have to, you don't have to send a child to school. You have a young daughter, right? Like very young, like he's just what, two, one, uh, 13 months, 13 months, right? Like, but she's already learning to talk, right? Yeah. You don't have to teach them how to learn how to talk. She doesn't have to go to school to learn how to talk, right? There is a linguistic circuitry. That is just part of, you know, the biological inheritance of being human, which enables her to speak and to hear. And those things, the the hearing channel and the tongue and our vocal cords, those things are wired up at a very deep level. 
inside of our biology. And like, this is the basis for the free speech that we're talking about in the social and political sense is our ability to even speak. So, but, you know, think about how many people like, you know, for hundreds of thousands of years, humans would speak and listen to probably not that many, whatever your extended local tribe family was, was probably the total number of people that you would ever speak to or listen to for the entirety of your lifetime. And that was kind of that feature evolved in that context. And now we're just in a context where like there's for all practical intents and purposes, an infinite amount of words and speech that are out there. And like, we can't, I mean, we can try to like, Oh, I want to manually filter. I love how you bring up the RSS as well. Right. It's like, that was cool. I loved it. I'm going to select the ones that the feeds that I want to actually come into my RSS reader, like Google news or Feedly or whatever you're using these days, but like that's still out there, but man, the amount of work to like build my own filter, it's fucking too much work, right? Like I don't want to, well, and then too much information, right? right? Then there's, I still have, I still use my feed reader and there's so much coming in. Yeah. So then it's like, Oh, I don't, I can't read half of them. So then the feed readers built a filter in terms of the top, the content you want on top. So I, I think that's right. part of, right. The, the, the just information onslaught we're seeing that is a different, uh, it's different, right? The, the number, the amount of speech we can be subjected to right now that, and I think this is an important thing in terms of what you were just sharing as well is it doesn't, it's kind of weird, but it's like, it's not necessarily locally sourced. So, right. It, back sure. in organic culture, right. There was a, there was a range from how far away that speech could be entering into our culture or arena or sphere in terms of fear. Yeah. Right. And, and that's important in a sense in terms of repercussions as well. Right. So if somebody's slandering me or saying something to me, they're actually within some kind of physical proximity to me, you know, before certain technologies extended the power of the word to travel, which has all kinds of different ramifications for how we deal with when people are, you know, speaking ill of me or something like that, which, you know, one of the asymmetrical things I think right now is, you know, you and I could just pick a person in the world and flood the information system with whatever we want and never be near them. And they can't even do anything back. You know, I was, I think it was, I can't remember which podcast you, you had me digest, but there was this crazy story of like somebody impersonating somebody on Grinder. They like set up a profile to impersonate another human being. And then that human being was getting flooded in their real life with like the repercussions of that, which is not something you could have done Harassment. right 400 years ago in, in a lot, a lot of ways. So that's where, again, this asymmetrical warfare and where the digital reach can start to cause a different kind of in-person harm and just even psychological health and well-being of how do I parse this much information, right? And, you know, I, th I think it's probably good for me to own, you know, my perspective and bias here that I think everything needs some kind of limit or structure. Like just that simply. Yes. I don't think you know, unregulated, unlimited anything is, is good for the world. I mean, life has death, right? <laughs> there's the ultimate regulation. Yeah. The, there's a structure around it. And that, to some, you know, what that structure is and how it evolves, I think is super important and can change. But even this idea, you know, where freedom of speech gets so complicated, 
and where, you know, parsing that now on the other side is so complicated is, well, what is truth, right? And, you know, you and I have both studied a lot of developmental psychology and this idea of worldviews and how people make meaning in that even that idea, truth, right, evolves depending on what consciousness you're experiencing it from. So how do we say what's true or not? What truths are more destructive than other truths? And how do, as a human being, you know, and this is where the asymmetrical kind of supernormal stimuli piece, I think, comes in. How on earth are we supposed to make meaning if we're being flooded with so much information at once, right? This is one of the things that yep. I know I was very challenged by in the last year in the pandemic was show me a research paper that's based in some kind of empirical science, and I'll show you the other research paper that's kind of proving the opposite thing, right? Which is like, what yep. am I supposed to do in this day and age where there's all, all this conflicting truth? And when there's that much information, what, you know, this is a developmental thing. What do we, what, what do they show tends to happen? People kind of bring their locus back, right? From trusting far off institutions to trusting local localizations to trusting friends and family, to then just trusting my feeling, my gut, right? This feels right. This feels right. And I, I fucking do that all the time. I'm not saying I don't, I can, you know, I got into fights with people online about stuff. Well, he's saying one thing and I just feel like it's not true, you know, and, but that opens up the door then to that slippery speech that we were talking about where suddenly someone's speaking with a type of certainty to trigger that feeling that helps us not have to try to keep up with all that conflicting truth. Yeah, totally. I mean, the, the idea that that somehow you could reduce it down to your subjective feeling as the as the arbiter of truth is really, really bad. And some of this, some of this talk in the conspirituality of like, oh, you gotta trust your inner sovereignty and this and this and that. Like I do believe it to an extent, but I'm like, you know, if if you just go back to like, I just trust my feelings, you know then you are really just, you've just created, you've opened yourself wide open to be the most vulnerable to the most exploitive people to harm you. If you do that, like there's some amount of cross-checking that's required. And this is sort of brushing up against several of our, our podcasts last year, which I think we should link people to if this is the first one they're listening to, but like these, we are intrinsically going to filter like, like the thing you said, filtering is good. Like, Again, the biological analogy, right? Our cellular membranes, they let certain things in. They don't let other things in, right? Our our immune system, like, allows certain things to exist and it kills off other things, right? Like, they're, like everywhere in nature, there is, you know, you might even say, like, the very, very definition of life requires there to be boundaries, semi-permeable boundaries, right? So, all right, cool. I, do, I think the same thing applies, actually, not, not, I'm not even advocating that it should be there. I'm saying that it already is there. We already are experiencing filtration at, in the social world, this mental newosphere that we're in together, right? It's already being filtered. You go back to our parents' generation. It, well, it was being filtered by the institutions of broadcast media that were essentially had a specifically special license from the federal government to kind of blast out information in a one-way direction on the airwaves, right? Like that was a filter, right? And these institutional filters, like 
peer-reviewed journals or what supposedly the the mainstream media and the press is doing or supposed to be doing like those filters are there for a reason because we don't have the background knowledge or the expertise to filter for ourselves and in the age of the internet where everyone has a channel and everyone can launch you know conspiracy theory of the week on whatever the heck you want if it's anti-vax or 9-11 truth or QAnon or whatever it is you could just go 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 like we're sort of in a weird zone where we've kind of like mistrusted the traditional institutions then we have for-profit companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google and YouTube that are essentially a bit lax on the filtering well the put it in a different way their principle of filtering is more of what you already like that's really the filters that they've settled on right they now i will give them credit right they are policing things like snuff videos and you know incitements to you know violence or you know words that could you know prompt somebody to kill themselves and you know people hanging themselves and they are filtering this stuff out no doubt i mean it's amazing how many people that they're paying like to to sit in these rooms and just freaking take down things like every second of the day they're they're doing takedowns because of shit that's actually in really clearly the harm zone right like yeah and, and this is i'm like there's no first amendment protection for that sort of thing you know like it's good that they're doing that you know and even the section 230 thing is like the section 230 thing is not about being somehow neutral like if you qualify this is the communications decency act of 1996 which essentially says like platforms are not publishers, you know, so long as you're, you know, providing information that was created by somebody else, rather than creating your own information, you qualify as a platform, not a publisher, which empowers you to actually filter however you'd like to, right? Like this, uh, this sort of idea that you shouldn't be able to filter is actually a misunderstanding of section 230. And I want that to be planted out there in our listeners as well. Like, especially if you hear people on the political right, attacking 230 they're attacking it from this point of view which is like oh it has to be neutral in order to qualify and that's not true it's a filter you can filter however you want to it actually 230 empowers the platforms to filter however they want to so back to the filtering right it's like it's gonna happen it's already happening right like spammers email spam that was the first sort of like they they mounted sort of first amendment defenses against online mail providers that built in spam filters like Google on Gmail saying, hey, Google has an automatic filter that's filtering out our free speech, which the truth is spam is First Amendment protected free speech, but you can't use, you, they tried to use the kind of like the broader principle of free speech to say that Google putting a spam filter onto Gmail was violating their ability to reach you. And it hasn't it hasn't held up like the can spam act of 2003 is more or less kind of the law of the land and kind of all the precedents and challenges that have followed on since then. But like this idea, like that the filtering is going to happen and the filter function essentially is improved by consolidated filterers, right? Like the Gmail spam filter gets better the more people have Gmail, right? Like this, the, the Facebook algorithm or the Google search results get better. They get better for us as end users. And I think this is an interesting, uh, you know, this uh, 
relatively new thinker on the scene, Sam Oberga. He is on Palladium. He's blogged for them. He's, he's talked about like the centralizing tendency of internet platforms. He also talked, they talked about free speech in the wake of the takedowns of the New York post article uh, in the, the October surprise that essentially mm-hmm. banned around uh, the Hunter Biden story. Uh, and he's basically has said like, look, we, we benefit from the centralized filtration system. And if we bust it up, we essentially will end up recreating it again anyway. Like, and like in the form of a spam filter or in the form of a news feed, you know, suggestions or, or whatever, like it's, it's sort of unavoidable to some degree. And even the, even the greatest decentralizer people, like I'm very much in favor of decentralized internet. I also realize like, well, it's not going to be so decentralized that I have to manage all of my own filters and search results. Like I'm going to rely on filter providers and search result providers. Like anyway, totally. and they're going to have a centralized thing that they're, the more people like a network effect, the more people that subscribe to this particular way of filtering or searching or discovery, whatever you want to call it, you know, the more power they will get, you know, and the better their algorithms will become. And we all love it up until the point we don't, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> avoidable, right? That, I mean, that the 230 stuff, the decentralized versus centralized and the, the central centralizing tendency. I think that's an, an interesting frame on, you know, what we might see is one of the ways to navigate this moving forward is, you know, uh, net neutrality has been a way we've been talking about this on the difference between the delivery mechanism and what's in the pipes. Right. Mm -hmm. And where I I do think, you know, we kind of have the, monopoly tendency the the some of these private companies having a little bit too much power is you know the web itself is decentralized in that http you can access that through all kinds of different browsers different things there's always a you can go to another one the social layer doesn't have that yet right so there isn't a decentralized protocol for the social layer in that you know one of the things i certainly see and have experienced firsthand of like the shadow of facebook is I have no choice over the algorithm, right? At most, I can hit mo- uh, recent, <laughs> right. but I have no idea what they're doing. I have no I, no input in that. As somebody who's run ads on Facebook, it's a black box. I have no idea if they're spending my money wisely. I have no idea if they've calculated like uh, a lottery exactly how much of a return I need to see to keep spending into the system, right? There's, there's no opacity around that versus, you know, something that m- may be emerging soon is, well, what if all this stuff, what if algorithms were a type of filter we could kind of choose, right? So I could choose, oh, what is my Facebook view of the world look like right now? Or what is my Twitter view of the world, which we kind of can to some extent, but the information siloed right now in these new filters as being ways to just sort and organize that different information and give us access to it that we're always going to need some of that, right? Like, I don't want to live in an unfiltered world, personally. I get, you know, this is in terms of like the purely free market and choice, choice, choice is always good. I get fucking exhausted anytime I have to buy something now. 
because I have to go on, I go on the wire cutter and then I go on the Amazon. And then, I mean, it, it just, <laughs> I bought a new mattress the a couple of years ago. Consumer. Is it, yeah. Yeah. The worst experience a human being could have right now is how to get good information about making a mattress purchase, <laughs> right? The whole system has been gamified and SEO ranked. And then it like triggers this deeply personal thing in people when you post it on Facebook. Like it was a fucking exhausting mess. <laughs> and, I, you know, to some extent, I do just want one or two people of high trust to be like, hey, most of this is garbage. Here's the one or two you should consider and try them and then base that on yourself. But that that idea of like no filters, I do think is kind of a a crazy utopia in that I I love this thing you're speaking to of it. It's kind of innate, you know, to some extent. And it's part of the human experience, right? That's one frame. uh, Some of the people I know you and I have both read about believe to be the truth about psychedelics. When you do a psychedelic, what's temporarily happening is a lot of the filters are going down. So you're getting access to some different stimuli in the moment that are normally filtered out. So you can just fucking function because to live that way day to day would actually be uh, overwhelming for a lot of us in terms of surviving. So our body layers on some filtering of the stimuli we're experiencing, you know, at at any point. And that, of course, with information, that's going to that's going to have to be true. And I think we've just seen the pendulum, you know, which was all gatekeepers, all gatekeepers and authority outside of ourself, you know, whether it was the church or the government or the private corporations, we've, we've kind of seen that to, you know, the, the, the utopian age of social media and user generated content, we're all going to be reporters and we're all going to be editors and we're going to be able to skip all that stuff. And it's going to make the world a better place. And then, Oh shit. Like what we just talked about. Oh, but by not having any editors or gateways or filters, we give room to um, people to manipulate that or for the shadowy aspects of human beings. And so in this tension between, you know, gatekeepers, non-gatekeepers, filters, non-filters, you know, I think to some extent there's always going to be some pendulum swinging, but, you know, I think one thing you and I are both interested in is like, what's the both and, you know, what is it that's fighting to emerge right now that honors, you know, our ability to have our private space and our ideas, but also honors that if we're vomiting or assaulting the the media sphere or people's psychic space with certain destabilizing information over and over and over again, that has an impact on us as a society and our well-being. And so, hmm, maybe we do need some kind of filters on that. And then who the hell gets to make that judgment call? You know, I think that's going to be one of the great questions that may not emerge from a nation state. You know, that's one of the things to going back into some of the other discussions we've have of some other kind of structure may have to somehow come into existence. Yeah. Yeah. It's telling that one place where at least superficially Trump and Biden sort of seemed to agree was we need to do something about section two Like, which is kind of funny, you know, to, to parse that a little bit here. Like they, they're attacking it from 
opposite ends of the political spectrum and for different reasons you know the the conservative attack we just went over was basically saying like uh you know there's an anti-conservatism bias in the social media so they're filtering or down regulating you know the accessibility of conservative viewpoints which is debatable by some people but that would be like a reason to like hey they're, they're violating their neutrality their supposed neutrality qualification so that they're like essentially switching from platform into publisher by violating the neutrality requirement of 230 but there is no neutrality requirement just to be clear but that's the kind of case that they're making is they're kind of disqualifying themselves from the privilege of being a platform and then on the other end you know the left they're in hate we're we're not regulating hate speech enough we're not regulating harm causing speech enough it's proliferating you know and you could talk about the ways that the capital rioters have organized or ways that like you know white supremacists all find each other online you know just to do a little detour on this like i remember you know in the 90s i came up in the internet in the 90s and i was pretty starry-eyed in terms of like this is going to be awesome because we're all going to be able to connect with each other and you know, things like the the Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace in 1996, which actually, I don't know if you know this, it, it was published right after the uh, the giant telecom omnibus of 1996, which includes the CDA and Section 230, was created. And then the, the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace came out right after that. And I was like, yeah, open access to information. I was into the open source movement. And I still sort of am centered on this for the most part. But I think I've become a little more, maybe a little more jaded, but a little bit more wizened, perhaps, like in terms of my assessment of it. But I remember Ken Wilber in in uh, some of his writing, especially Boomeritis, he would say, "You think this is going to be all great, but what's going to happen is uh, all of the all the hate groups are all going to find each other, and then they're going to amplify themselves in their own little sub forums." Which I think his his prophecy has turned out to be true. If you take that as a prophecy of kind like it's actually amplified this kind of hate stuff and so i mean that kind of leads us back to the reason why the the left wants to like sort of tweak or torque with 230 right there's there are 230 exception clauses you, you know we can talk about even just free speech exceptions right incitement to there's first amendment exceptions right like libel uh you know violating intellectual property right like incitement to violence fighting words these types of things so there are already exceptions to the first amendment and then if you kind of go to you know 230 there are these exceptions that kind of got built in in terms of uh sex trafficking and, and some other things like that the platforms are responsible so all those you know rooms of traumatized people taking down horrific images and videos they're there but in order to avoid criminal litigation against them but then like above that i mean sometimes i sort of just wonder if it's just facebook internally it just has fatigue they're just sort of like we're just trying to keep up with the shit that we already know we have to based on the 230 exceptions and now the left is asking us to police even more and it's kind of like that's just you know too charged but but it does it is telling 
that both sides want to attack 230 for different reasons. And it is telling that, you know, you might, this is where I kind of think is, is sort of interesting. We could, we, you could talk about this kind of cult-like, dictatorial, elliptical, plausible deniability, abusive speech that Trump does, you know, but other people do it also, right? Like, hey, pile on, hey, Twitter, do your thing, go get this person, right? And the, you know, people are kind of like your, your fans, you know, this, uh, did you ever read the Internet of Beefs? Kind of like by Vinkatesh Rao. Uh, yeah. I, it's it's incredibly long, but yes, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's amazing, right? Like, and you could, if you if you have a bunch of mooks that are like you're a knight, and you have like thousands of people that are basically your your stands or your fanboys or whatever. You can be like sick them on the opposite, right? And then they'll just come over and they'll do a pile on on the other person, and it's sort of like this weird cyber battle. That's it's like in a on social media, which is kind of funny, but like those pylons are very real. This is the, this is the power of speech to ruin people's lives, right? Which we don't think of it very often in that way, but it really fucking can. And it really does. And it has, but then you kind of have like, you know, the, the other thing that's sort of happening is this kind of censorious nature of, you know, the woke movement, the anti hate speech movement, the anti-fascist movement, the anti-white supremacy movement, the kind of like, Hey, this is where it gets really kind of interesting because sometimes I'm just saying something like, Hey, I like, I like Western civilization and the kind of the history of the, 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 the Greeks and the Judeo Christian tradition has given us. And I could imagine like a fictional woke person being like your dog whistling white supremacy. And I'm like, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing this sort of like indirect speech read between the lines I'm promoting. Right. So like the issue is while there may be a genuine worry about these kind of embedded commands or sort of elliptical indirect language that is being used to great effect to cause harm. But then if you sort of start trying to like build in filters to prevent each example of that, Right then, then you the censoriousness just starts ratcheting up, and it's like, well, is that a dog whistle or is that person just you know is a cigar sometimes just a cigar? Right, is this person just saying what they mean? Because you can always make a case, right? Like this is this is what the woke calls problematizing, right? It's problem is problematizing is like finding a problem with something, right, that isn't already there in an obvious way, right? So it's like, cool, we problematize that speech, problematize that speech, problematize that speech. And then if you're sort of like, yeah, we got to, you got to add more filters to prevent the things that could be taken in this way. There's sort of like no upper bound on that type of censoriousness that can come from the left. And essentially if, if the 230 protection gets eroded from the left, potentially we could be entering into under the Biden administration. I mean, it, it's not lost on a lot of people that the very day that they realized that like they were going to be regulated by the left is that week when they just sort of like flipped on all the sense, the censoring, right? Like, yeah, I mean, and this is, and it's also the week there was an insurrection. Also, I know, right? no. <laughs> which is, excuse me. But if you thought you were going to overreach, you imagined potentially that the new administration would be providing cover or the new, whatever Senate oversight committees would be providing cover because the majority just switched. It's tricky. It's tricky. Uh, yeah. And, and there's a good chance we're going to see some serious antitrust coming anyway, 
for the first time, e- even from the left, uh, around a, a few of uh, of these companies and their acquisitions. But the, you know, the, I do want to highlight the interesting thing that I learned in prepping for this about two thirty was how it is kind of two different things, right? Smashed in there. Of one, there's you have the right to not be held liable for the content coming over your pipes, so to speak, right? So if I'm if I post a blog post or this podcast on my site and someone does something in the comments, so to speak, I'm not liable for that, right? My my uh, web host isn't liable for that, so that creates some protection for user generated content. But then there's the other piece inside there that also protects those companies that are creating that space that gives them the right to filter that space how they want. That's right. right? So, so there's this interesting thing in terms of Twitter's allowed to filter their feed how they want. Twitter's allowed to say no shirt, no shoes, no service, you know, so to speak. Uh, like our house, our rules. And so that attacking from both sides of 230, right? It's like inherently in there is it's like it's pulling or it's kind of defending both sides that it seems to me part of where the the tension is, is okay. It's just, it's no longer sufficient for the complexity that's happening right now. And maybe we need some more nuance in a couple areas, right? Don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. And, you know, we've talked before about unintended consequences and what happens when you do add complexity to certain things, but that, I mean, even this is a choice of perspective, you know, uh, on the one hand, it's like, oh, well, clearly things aren't working where to, you know, there's a whole nother perspective. Mm -hmm. Actually, the system's working pretty great. Like we called an insurrection, you know, Private corporations did what they they are allowed to do, and you know decided how they wanted to do business, and like, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm still a little in the middle in terms of where this is all going to go and what needs to happen, but that yeah, I can only sense or it, it feels to me that some higher order is due to provide some kind of new structure. Oh, yeah. everything we're dealing with. Yeah, it's it's we're in the middle of an unfolding situation and the kind of like the pat answers that maybe we were used to aren't totally working anymore. I still think after studying it, I think section two thirty is pretty freaking ingenious in, in terms of like the, the, the way that it kind of has a compromise in the middle there. And I do think, you know, in response to this moment, you know, all the platforms did this one thing. And then even people like, the ACLU and Angela Merkel and the president of Mexico are like, this is too much power. The power to just ban the, the sitting president of the United States and this idea that the tech giants have this unchecked power, which I think is a little bit, even that's oversold. I'm like, their power is checked to some degree. You might be sort of pointing out one ways in which it should be more checked or it's too unchecked. But this battle over the territory of speech, and, and now I'm going to maybe do a quickie in a, in my tinfoil hat conspiracy land, right? Just, well, one thing before I leap off the deep end here is is to simply say, this makes sense. It made sense for the Greeks and the Romans. It made sense for John Stuart Mill that like the control of the speech environment, 
right, in order to essentially legitimate the governance is they go together, right? And like, you know, Habermas kind of really evolved this in the 20th century with his his ideas of discourse ethics and the ideal speech situation. Where it's like, you kind of have to, to legitimate governance. It has to be preconditioned on the fact that like, we could come to a consensus about what governance we want to have. Otherwise it's an invalid kind of governance. And I believe in this, right? But the battleground is now over, like, where's the important location, time, space, location of the speech? And right now, it sort of seems like these platforms are, in a large part, analogous. Like, this is the argument. Like, this is analogous to these public squares we used to have, or the town hall, or whatever you want to call it, which is debatable whether the analogy fits or not. But if it is moving in this direction, then, you know, here I'm kind of going conspiracy-wise, like, the issue is possibly this red versus blue or left versus right thing that's happening in the U.S. One take here is, and we've seen evidence of this, that there's been some amount of psychological narrative warfare, PSYOP stuff. PSYOP stuff is old school intelligence misinformation thing all the way back from World War II when the CIA did it. Right. But like now we, we sort of saw that, you know, the Internet Research Agency in in Moscow was able to inject tons of misinformation. And they already knew because our Internet is free and open. They knew the kinds of things to say that would egg on people on the left further to the left and to say the kinds of things that would take egg on people from the right further to the right and then pit them against each other, sometimes even saying like convene in the same place at time. Which, which totally made up fucking fights on the streets. So doing protests, yeah, the protests, like that were not created by those people. They were created by these plants onto our social media networks using the algorithmic amplification that we just talked about. So one view is like, you know, there's a two. It's called the spl- the splinternet or the twinternet, the Chinese and the U.S. one, or like, like this is in a way if. If China, let's just take China as an example, could become the more trusted source for all of your information technology instead of the U.S.-centered internet, then they win something really huge, right? They get to actually govern a larger part of the public discourse on the planet, which actually gives them more control over information flows. And if the war really is where the central information flow regulation is, it sort of makes sense to get the right and the left in the United States both attacking this one regulation that protects the platforms that are in the U.S. and encouraging us to take antitrust action against our own companies to break them up. Guess who win? They win, right? Like then they will control the the information flows of the planet, which is extra bad in my opinion. Now. This is sort of like we're in the middle of a cyber world war three already. And like this whole thing between right and left in the U S is a battle within it, but really more of a superficial conflict rather than the deeper level conflict. I'm not totally sure how much I buy into this idea, but like it's kind of, there's a way it sort of fits the, the data that I'm looking at here. I don't know. What do you think of this? And maybe we can close out on this crazy speculation stuff. No, that that actually makes it, ton of sense to me. And I mean, I think we we saw and we're navigating the first, what I would call direct <laughs> missile fire yep. of TikTok, like uh, a new source of information flow that was not sourced in the US. 
so far, all the major social media platforms have kind of come out of us. So there's a certain level of trust in them, even if, you know, it's not the deepest trust, but suddenly, you know, the, the reaction to TikTok and, and, and seeing it is pervasive, right? And they have their own algorithms and we don't know what's being amplified monitored. and what's not and why and what's being monitored and how can that be used to construct all kinds of information warfare against us. So I do think it's happening. And, you know, again, if you just simplified that, right, it's centralized versus non-centralized, right? That's maybe one of the tensions, right? In an aspect, the, the U.S. internet was decentralized and sure. you could access anything over the web. What's different about China? They have the firewall. It's centralized. They're controlling the flow of information. Uh, and then, you know, we just see that tension everywhere. I, I see that tension right in the social media networks. What used to be online yep. in blogs now just goes right into the Facebook feed, right? It's a centralized walled garden. I see this is one of my things that makes me sad is I see friends like pouring out their hearts into these huge long posts into the Facebook walled garden that then just gets swallowed up forever and have like a year or not even a year, a week of shelf life maybe. And I'm like, wow, it's so like, why are you feeding that beast and not creating your own blog? Well, oh, cause there's a trade-off. I get instant reach. feedback. The reach. I get instant reach. I get instant feedback. I get instant comments. Whereas on a blog, you're in the seat, the endless ocean and you won't. But the, again, it's that central tension that we're dealing with here. And then suddenly we have the big, <laughs> the big other opportunity in China coming at us that I think you're right for us to kind of, how do we walk that tension of mostly open, but with some safety protections, right. Right? some, some, some bowling bumper rails, so to speak. So Things can't go yeah. too far off the line in terms of what's good for the whole, what's good for the collective, I think is yeah. so important. Yeah, and I mean, it's why Zuckerberg says to Congress, regulate me. I want to be regulated. In a way, if he gets in bed with the state, I mean, it's the libertarians' worst nightmare, right? Like, essentially, now the US will have more state control over what's going on in Facebook. But then, if you sort of look at it as like a global cyber war, maybe the US plus Facebook and Twitter as sort of like, you know, Team West you know, versus Team East is good. I don't know. I, I don't know how to, yeah. I, don't, I don't know, like what to say about it. It's weird. Well, like, and it, that country. might be one of the, the both ands, right? Yeah. That might have to be one of the both ands that like, like, you know, I think we're navigating of free markets versus government regulation. How can they both make each other thrive more? you know, would be the thing I, I would see here. And we might see that happen in this sphere. Some regulation might actually strengthen, right? If if Facebook and Instagram are broken up this year, might that cause some innovation in those two channels of their feeds or novelty that actually strengthens that Western pole of the information onslaught, right? I don't know, but it's possible. I don't know. It's possible versus the current system of, novel new entity is born, gets bought by a big corporation, all that novelty gets dispersed and the big monolith just keeps swallowing. Yep. <laughs> well, man, this was an incredibly wide ranging and deep conversation to, you know, an issue, this free speech thing that there is no easy answer to, and it's a lot of gray and it's a lot of complexity and having to navigate. And I think we're going to 
keep seeing this unfold over the coming months. And a lot of the ideas we've touched in here, uh, I'm excited to speak with you about in some from some other perspectives as well coming up. So there's going to be a lot more a lot more breaking free this year. So <laughs> the only way I can put it around some of these ideas. And I'm just curious, is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Well, I hope people feel invited to a deeper level of this conversation and to sort of set down a little bit of the short-term reactivity and like the kind of t- turmoil of recent events. I mean, sometimes taking very direct action is super important and maybe we're in a moment like that, but like it's also one of those moments where the people who want to control and exploit will take advantage of it. And like, if you don't have the kind of like framework of background knowledge or understanding these issues more in their historical context, where these things sort of came from, what kind of issues are at play? Like hopefully we gave people more mental constructs to work with that rather than uh, just sort of like news of the day sort of level of analysis because you know and you know i don't i don't have answers right now but at least i think we kind of like laid out a lot of the factors that are at play that you know i'm not hearing in the discourse out there kind of like brought together in the way that we did so hopefully this gives people a lot of food for thought absolutely and if you're listening uh let us know what you thought right here on uh the, the the comments on on my site or find Michael or and I on social media on Twitter and the Facebooks and we're open to the conversation and the dialogue you know that's that's probably the most proactive thing we can do at this point is just keep parsing keep parsing keep parsing so with that uh, we're going to close things out thank you so much Michael it has been an awesome treat to dialogue with you on this awesome man later. Special shout out and thanks to Screaming Witness for the amazing intro and outro song. Check them out. <laughs>